0: Hello and welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then we rank them from best to worst. I'm Sarah and I'm Ben. Thanks for listening to us today. It's episode 51. Yeah, (laughs) we've
1: been doing this a while.
0: Yeah, it's just, it's really cool. Mm Mm-hmm. What are we watching today?
1: Well, Sarah, today we are watching The Raven from 1935. I've, I've got a question for you, Sarah. Sure. This movie is, um, suggested by the classic poem by Edgar Allan Poe. I believe that's what it says in the credits.
0: Same way as the black cat was inspired.
1: Yeah, exactly. And... You know, when I read that, I thought to myself, Edgar Allan Poe, where do I know that name from? <laughs> have, we, have we talked about him on the podcast? Several times. Before? Yes. We, do we know who he is? Is he someone important?
0: Mildly important. Okay. Yeah.
1: I don't remember, maybe. Let's, let's pretend I don't remember. <laughs> it's
0: episode 51, so...
1: Exactly, and I only have a memory of one or two
0: episodes at a time. You're like a goldfish. Right, a podcast goldfish.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So Edgar Allan Poe was born in eighteen o nine, and he died in eighteen forty nine. Mm-hmm. And if your math skills aren't very polished, that's forty years old. Does mm-hmm. <laughs> <Was> that mean <laughs> Poe was born in Boston? He didn't have a very happy life. Right, I'll put it that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, his dad abandoned the family in eighteen ten and his mom died the following year. He was raised by some family friends, uh, John and Francis Allen. Okay. So that's where the Allen in his name comes from. Oh, okay. Uh, as he was growing up, there were a lot of arguments over money and gambling and the cost of his schooling, so Poe decided to enlist in 1827, and this is also around the same time that he started to write and get published. Okay. He wasn't very good at the army.
1: Uh, <laughs> You don't say.
0: He was court-martialed for refusing to attend formations, classes, or church.
1: Right, so not doing anything.
0: Yeah, and this court-martial happened shortly before he was publishing his third volume of poems in 1831, uh, which included some long poems that were reprinted, Tamerlane and Al-Araf, and uh, some other unpublished, shorter poems. Kind of what I'm getting at is that, like, He's been publishing poems for a bit. Right. Um, as much as he is known for his prose works, uh, he started out as a poet. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he just got court-martialed in the military, but his writing career is growing, so Poe made the decision to become a full-time writer. And he's one of the first well-known Americans to try living off writing alone. hmm Then, as now, that's very difficult. Mm-hmm. Because people don't pay you on time.
1: Or sometimes at all.
0: Or sometimes at all. So he started to work as an editor or assistant editor at various periodicals. If you look at where his work was published and where he was working at the time, his work was often published in those same periodicals during his employment. Yeah, I mean, that, that makes sense. Yeah, which isn't like a, a slight against him. But it's just a thing to notice.
1: Yeah, I mean, your radio show is on the radio station that you work for.
0: Yes. <laughs> as he worked as an editor at various periodicals, he was gaining notoriety uh, in the literary community because he would write a little critical book reviews mm-hmm. of other authors' work. Yeah. During this time, you know, he continued to work on poems, but he had long since developed his skills in prose as well. These writing and editor gigs would continue throughout the 1830s. And as I mentioned, every time we talk about Poe, but it's actually relevant with this particular episode, he would marry his 13-year-old cousin, Virginia Clem, in 1836, uh, when he was 26.
1: Hmm. Good luck, Poe.
0: Even at the time, people were like, what are you doing? <laughs> Poe often writes of what's called Gothic Themes and if you're a long time listener, you know that I'm a big fan of gothic literature and gothic horror in particular. And you can learn about what, why it's called gothic, um, in previous episodes, specifically with like the old dark house episodes. But when I refer to gothic here, I I also mean it in that current modern day understanding of goth kids wearing all black and stuff like that (laughs) um, because he was very interested in supernatural and dark themes. Some things that would come up again and again in his horror writings were questions of death, states of decompositions, mourning, a loss of some kind, premature death and or burials, and other kind of horrific tales.
1: So he's kind of a morbid guy.
0: Very morbid. Um, He'd also write... Much litter, criticism as I kind of mentioned before, but satires and even humor. But he always seemed to return to horror. He has said in writings that it's because it sold well.
1: Sure, yeah. Do what makes money.
0: Yeah. As Poe continued developing his bibliography, he was becoming well-known in the literary community, but struggling to get public notice. Um, And part of this was the difficulties he had with copyright law, or the lack thereof, with people overseas taking a lot of credit for his work and plagiarizing. Hmm. It wasn't until The Raven, published in 1845, that Poe's name became common knowledge. By this point, he was struggling with but managing his alcoholism, while his wife was three years into her fight with tuberculosis, which would ultimately claim her life, Two years later in 1847. At the time of the Raven's publication, um, she was struggling with her health, and in her diary she writes about knowing that she'll die and of becoming Poe's guardian angel in death.
1: Weird. I mean, fine, sure, romantic, nice, pleasant, weird.
0: Weird. The Raven is a narrative poem, and by that I mean that it tells a story in poem form. It's very spooky, and has supernatural themes. Mm -hmm. It tells of a narrator in mourning over his lost love, Lenore. As he's mourning, a raven flies into his room and consistently replies, Nevermore, to the narrator's questions and statements. Mm -hmm. The narrator concludes he'll never be free of loneliness, of grief, and of this blasted raven. Mm -hmm. Will he move on? Nevermore. Will he join Lenore in heaven? Nevermore. Sure. Thus he feels his soul is trapped by this accursed raven and shall be lifted nevermore. In his loneliness and grief, and uh, this like devotion to his love, his lost love, but also to, you know, this feeling of loss, you know, there's takes on the poem that suggest that he likes this feeling of loss, mm. that he enjoys it. Throughout the poem, we see how he descends into madness. Some people, in writing about the raven, note how the idea of a woman dying is very common in Poe's work. Yeah. And they attribute that to his wife dying. She wasn't dead yet. She hasn't died yet. Um, That being said, you know, tuberculosis is a very nasty way to go, you're withering away and right in, like in the, front of
1: people. And in, like, the 1840s, like, there isn't really, like, a, a, a cure. Like, you're, you're gonna die. It's yeah. just a matter of when.
0: Yeah. So as much as I'm like, guys, he w- she wasn't dead yet. She was clearly going to. Mm-hmm. For Poe, he's written that the death of a beautiful woman is unquestionably the most poetical topic in the world. Yeah, I
1: mean, it was the 1840s. TB was like the romantic disease.
0: Yeah, because you have enjoyed life too much, you've cons- you've been consumed from the inside out.
1: And it was also like because you could go because it killed you so slowly, you could like, you know, have farewells with people and you could, you know, really milk it for all it was worth and like it was it was <laughs> in the sense that like you weren't going suddenly, right? So it was kind of seen as a very um
0: Capital R, Romantic.
1: A lot of that comes from stuff like La Boheme, which um, I think is later by 20 or 30 years, but it's the same kind of thing. The dying of TB is associated with innocence and purity and and therefore like young, beautiful women like Poe's talking about.
0: With The Raven skyrocketing Poe to a kind of celebrity status, he was given the nickname The Raven. Soon after publication, there were reprints as well as parodies. It's one of the most famous poems ever written.
1: Yeah, to the point where, like, I'm sure most people listening to this could, like, just start reciting it, at least the first few lines.
0: Yeah. What comes to my mind is that, uh, Simpsons episode from one of the Tree House of Horrors.
1: Yeah, with James Earl Jones. Yeah, Yeah. For sure.
0: Poet Elizabeth Barrett wrote to Poe how his raven has produced a fit of horror in England, with some of her friends intrigued by the fear in the poem, as well as by its musicality. Mm -hmm. So as much as the poem has this element of realism, you know, it's just this guy mourning, and then this bird flies into his room and, like, won't leave him alone. It's just a bird doing bird things. Um, There is still, like, this bit of a ghost story element to it, um, with, like, this bird not haunting him like a ghost, but, like, haunting him of his grief. Yes. So it definitely fits into what you could see as like a gothic genre.
1: Yeah, for sure.
0: And probably because it's so well known, maybe that's why Poe is seen as like a horror writer despite the stuff that he he wrote. Like we talked a lot about how he wrote like the very first detective story in Murders in the Rue Morgue, when it's really like it's th- that there's no horror in that story, it's just a detective, with, like a weird orangutan <laughs> explanation.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's certainly the fact that his best-known stuff, the stuff that sort of survived in public consciousness, is the weird, eerie, morbid stuff, because you've also got, like, Telltale Heart and Follow the House of Usher. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly.
0: But I think, especially with, like, your opening of how this story is inspired or suggested <laughs> by Poe's the Raven, um, I think it's just important to note that, like, Poe had the nickname The Raven, Mm. because it seems like this is more like a weird guy doing weird things in his basement type of story, rather than a weird bird flying in and bothering you all night.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, one common strategy that Hollywood will sometimes use when adapting a short story or some other short piece of fiction, like The Raven's a very short poem, right? It's not The Odyssey, it's like two pages, it's it's not enough to make a movie out of. And usually when Hollywood adapts short stuff like that, a common strategy is to have the original short story or whatever be one scene in the movie and then to expand it out, which is kind of what we got in Murders in the Room Morgue. That's not how this movie is, uh, The Raven. It There's no scene where, you know, somebody's mourning their lost Lenore and a bird flies in. That's not in here at all. Like... This is much more in the Black Cat family of we took the title of a Poe thing and made up something new. (laughs) Um, The difference really is that there's more more of Poe in the Raven. He's a subject of the movie rather than in the Black Cat where they just slapped a title and threw a cat in a totally different movie. The Black Cat had been a huge hit for Universal in 1934. I think in our episode on it, we mentioned that it was Universal's biggest hit of the year that year. Naturally, another Poe-inspired vehicle to team up Bela Lugosi and Boris Karloff was quickly planned as a follow-up.
0: Because
1: that's just what you do when you have a success. You copy it. Uh, As I said, unlike The Black Cat, the storyline for The Raven does at least take more from Poe than just the title. But it's still not a strict adaptation. Rather, it features a Poe-obsessed lead character, uh, allowing the film to reference multiple Poe stories throughout the running time. Mm. The central character with the Poe obsession is played by Bella Lugosi, but despite having a larger part than Karloff, he's still build under him, uh, which is a reminder of his lesser place with the studio since the failure of Murders in the Rue Morgue. We last saw Lugosi in Mark of the Vampire. His only film in the meantime uh, was The Mystery of the Mary Celeste, uh, a maritime murder mystery most notable for being the second film to come from British production company Hammer Films, which we're going to talk a lot more about several hundred episodes from now probably. (laughs) Despite his smaller role, Boris Karloff got the top billing uh, under just his last name, which had become the standard for the actor by this point. Universal's marketing for the film focused heavily on Karloff, this being the actor's follow-up to Bride of Frankenstein. So we're, we're playing off of that. It's his next movie, hey, here's Karloff. Karloff was even called a master of makeup in the marketing, as if he did his own, like Lon Chaney Sr., when of course Jack Pierce did Karloff's appearance in this film, just like all his other Universal appearances. The film's director is credited under his birth name of Louis Friedlander, though he is better known under his later name of Lou Landers. He's born in 1901 and had been working in the film industry since he was 14, And by 1934, he had worked his way up to the director's chair. The Raven was his sixth feature film Mm. in a year.
0: In a year? Whoa! Yeah,
1: his first film was in 1934. This is 1935. Um, And he would remain this prolific after changing his name in 1936, ultimately scoring 175 directing credits across film and television before his death in 1962 his final film being released the year after his death.
0: Any kind of notable films?
1: He's kind of just a worker. like.
0: Well, clearly, if he's this prolific.
1: Yeah, he's going to maybe pop up again in the future, but he really did everything and anything for anyone. Returning from Werewolf of London to shoot this film is cinematographer Charles Stumar. Uh, it would, however, be Stumar's final film, as he would perish, nine days before its release in a plane crash at the age of 45. Whoa. Also returning from Werewolf of London is actor Lester Matthews, who portrayed Paul Ames in that film, and he is again the romantic lead in The Raven. Opposite Matthews, as the film's uh, female romantic lead, is Irene Ware, born Irene Allberg in 1910 in New York City. She was Miss New York at 18, Miss America, at 19, and a runner-up Miss Universe, at 20. In 1932, she was signed to Fox Studios, and her name was changed to Irene Ware. Her first big role was as the romantic lead in Fox's 1932 film, Shondu the Magician, which had also featured Bella Lugosi as the villain. The Raven was her 16th film. Her career largely focused on roles emphasizing her physical beauty, Sometimes she'd get larger parts, usually large parts in B movies and small parts in A movies. She would ultimately leave acting in 1940 to focus on a life as a wife and mother to her children, having initially married an award-winning screenwriter and then divorcing him and getting married to a federal judge.
0: I, is that, like, a step up or a step down, do you think? Probably. Maybe a step up with, like, the salary?
1: Yeah, probably a step up in terms of, like, the lifestyle. Yeah. Definitely. So The Raven was greeted with disdain, uh, apathy, and protest when it was released on July 8th, 1935.
0: That's a pretty good sign of
1: a good horror movie, though. <laughs> uh, its themes of torture, disfigurement, and revenge were considered far too grisly for audiences of the time. And the film got a chilly reception at the box office.
0: And this is, like, two years after the code?
1: This is July 35, so the code's been in effect for basically a year.
0: Huh. So I'll be very interested to see, like, how much of that stuff it actually includes. Mm. To see, like... Because I wonder if it's this kind of reaction to something that's released post-code. If it would have gotten that kind of reception, like before the code came out. Like, if people are so now accustomed to code standards and not seeing that many films, that many horror films.
1: Yeah, I mean, this was the... This was Universal's, you know, Big Bride of Frankenstein follow-up. I mean, Werewolf of London didn't really make a splash, but it wasn't really made by the same people. Like, this is Karloff, this is Lugosi. And yeah, it got this really negative response. It was considered highly controversial in Britain, even with an H rating. Um, There were calls to ban it in Britain. I don't think it did get banned in Britain, but it lit the fires in Britain for increased calls to simply just ban horror films altogether in that country. Um, The New York Times called it the worst horror film of the year. Oh, no. And they mostly lambasted it for calling itself The Raven and claiming to be based on Edgar Allan Poe, despite having this original story. And the Times also just criticized Universal for not finding anything better to do with the source (laughs) material of Edgar Allan Poe. Basically that if Universal couldn't do any better with works of classic literature as the basis for their horror films, they should stick to adapting pulp magazines.
0: Do you recall what the New York Times review for The Black Cat? It was
1: also really negative. Okay, Um, They They considered, um, I believe the Black Cat review had something about how they piled on the agony too thick and there was just, like, too much horror in that movie for its own good. Okay. And how, like, you couldn't... It was too horrific and so you couldn't take the story seriously because it was just too much. The film's failure was a major blow to the sort of burgeoning post-code return of horror films. Several studios had films in production as a response to Bride of Frankenstein. We've already seen Mark of the Vampire from MGM. You know, Bride was enough to get MGM to sort of come out of horror retirement to make a, a competing film. And a lot of other studios had competing films that we'll be seeing relatively shortly. But, you know, those films were kind of already in production on their way out the door, as it were, when this came out and was this big flop. And that sort of suddenly made all these major studios kind of back off from the genre again and pull the brakes, and it kind of left it to the B-movies.
0: Yeah, if, if Universal can't make a film succeed, can't make a horror film succeed, I can understand why they'd be like, "Oh ah, shit, back up, back up.
1: Yeah, exactly. Karloff actually ended his contract with Universal after this film uh, and would only make four more films with them uh, before the end of the decade. So over the next five years, trying very hard to find other avenues of revenue for himself, as well as just sort of escape the genre and show that he should be thought of for other things.
0: Did he succeed?
1: No. And because of the fact that he was thought of as a horror actor and the horror genre was sort of being left to the B-movies and the Poverty Row Studios, it ended up meaning that Karloff had to work for Poverty Row Studios doing B-movies. This is kind of the beginning of the end of his reign at the top. Mm. Um, he'll still have a few more big movies after this, but this is this is the beginning of the end for sure. uh him ending his contract with universal was a was a big part of that. like I said, he will work for them again in the future, but it'll be on and off. so the Raven is available on its own on dVD from the Universal Vault series, or it's available with. Murders in the Room Morgue, The Black Cat, The Invisible Ray, and Black Friday in the Bella Lugosi collection from Universal.
0: Cool. Well, if you would just like to see some of these previous films, you can go to our YouTube playlist on screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. But otherwise, uh, find a way to watch the movie and we will see you after a brief musical interlude.
1: Yeah, get yourself a copy of The Raven somehow and watch along with us and we'll see you on the other side. welcome back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching The Raven from 1935. Sarah, what did you think?
0: It's so fun.
1: Yeah, this is a really fun movie.
0: I love this movie.
1: I had a really good time watching it.
0: Apparently, according to Ben, we've seen this before. Yes. And there were parts that I was like, this seems familiar. But for the most part, I have no recollection of seeing this movie. Which made it a real treat to see this movie like it was new all over again. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a really good
1: one. I think it's, it's a bit of a hidden gem. Yeah. The storyline begins with Jean Thatcher, who's a dancer, getting into a car accident. She has, like, a lot of nerve damage, basically. Uh, her nerves are pinched, and the doctors can't do anything about it, um, including her fiancé, uh, Dr. Jerry Halden, And her dad, Judge Thatcher, is getting pretty desperate. So Halden suggests bringing in Dr. Vollin, who is this brilliant neurosurgeon. Uh, Vollin is retired and instead spends his time engaged in his hobby of being totally obsessed with Edgar Allan Poe.
0: Dr. Vollin is Bela Lugosi.
1: Yes. Judge Thatcher goes to Vollin and begs him to come out of retirement to save Jean's life and finally manages to convince him basically just by accidentally playing to his ego, which tells you the kind of guy Volan is, that he basically just refuses to help save Gene's life on, like, moral grounds, ethical grounds. Uh, He won't accept money for it. Like, he just doesn't give a fuck until it's admitted that the other doctors don't think they're to his level. Uh, And then he's like, oh, okay, I'll come and do it. So he fixes Jean, and she can dance again, and everything's great, um, except that Valin, I don't want to say he falls in love with Jean so much as really the feeling is he th- seems to think he should just get Jean as...
0: A reward for saving her life.
1: Right, exactly, Like because he didn't take any payment for it or anything, so now he basically just feels like he should have her as the reward, as gratitude. He's made her fiancé his assistant, which, like, is a promotion for him, but, like, in Valen's mind, it's because, like, a I'm getting gonna... to right?
0: consolation prize taking your woman. Yeah,
1: exactly. So Valen's really weird and creepy about this, and it gets to a degree of weird and creepy where uh, Jean's dad, Judge Thatcher, feels he needs to step in, says, like, hey... Gene might be, maybe Gene has a crush on you, and she shouldn't leave Jerry for you because, like, you're, like, twice her age, right? Don't you agree, Dr. Valen? And Volin's like, no, I'm, I'm totally down to clown. And um, the, the judge is very alarmed by this and says, like, hey, you better back away from my daughter. You're mad. And he's like, yup, <laughs> I am. And you'll, like, rue the day you ever told me what to do.
0: Can you say, uh, yep, totally down to clown in your Bella Lugosi impersonation? Yes, I am totally down to clown. <laughs> it's at this point
1: in the story that we are introduced to Edmund Bateman, played by Boris Karloff, who's basically like a down-on-his-luck career criminal. And he's on the lam, he's a fugitive... And he's desperate to uh, change his appearance in such a way that the, the authorities aren't going to co- catch up with him. And someone tells him that uh, Dr. Vollin's the person to go to. So he makes his way to Vollin's house and insists that like Vollin has to help him by changing his face. Vollin's not a plastic surgeon and he tells Bateman this. But Bateman's like, hey, I was told you could do it, so you better do it. At which point, Valen decides that he'll do this for Bateman, but only if Bateman does some murder and torture for Valen first. And Bateman tries to explain that, like, you know, he he doesn't want to do crime anymore, he's repentant, he, he doesn't like murdering and torturing people, uh, it's just something that kind of, just kind of happens, <laughs> you
0: know. Some t- sometimes you fall into a profession.
1: Yeah, and and in the course of that profession, you sometimes murder and, and torture people. It you know, it's just unavoidable. Sometimes it's like getting grease splashed on you if you're a fry cook. It's you know, you don't like it when it happens. It just <laughs> it's sometimes it's unavoidable.
0: It's an occupational hazard. Right?
1: Exactly. And and, you know, and and Bateman says to Vaughn, like, hey, I've got money, I can pay you. But again, Volan doesn't care about money. He wants a favor. So finally, he sort of convinces Bateman to do this murder and torture for him because Volan says, like, hey, I can change your face, like, right now. So convinced, Volan takes Bateman down into his basement, which is a dungeon that's filled with replicas of torture devices from Edgar Allan Poe short stories. You know, it's sort of like when really big Star Trek fans build, like, replicas of the original series bridge set in their garage, only their murder implements from, like, centuries-old horror stories. Uh, He brings Bateman into his operating room, his home operating room, that is (laughs) also down in this dungeon, Yeah, and explains to Bateman that the way he can change his face as a neurosurgeon is he can manipulate the nerve endings in the muscles in his face to change his expression to whatever he wants it to be. And I'm sitting here, and I'm thinking, (laughs) I feel like if you just messed around with someone's nerve endings in their face, you just sort of kill all the nerves in their muscles, and they just look like they'd had a stroke.
0: Which is what happens. Yes. Jack Pierce went on vacation, (laughs) and they wound up with this makeup job.
1: Yeah, I don't know if that's actually what happened, but like, that's what Valen does. He, he droopies one side of Bateman's face. He makes Bateman basically look like a sort of exaggerated caricature of maybe what someone with um, like a paralyzing stroke to one side of their face might look like. So he's got sort of the, the drooped mouth, a really droopy eye, his, his skin's sort of all saggy on that side. And yeah, as Sarah said, the, the makeup job isn't up to the usual standard, it's, it's, a lot of it's the eye, rather than doing, like, a Lon Chaney thing and, like, pinning down Karloff's eyelid or something like that, like, they wanted to have the eye be dead and kind of only look in one direction so that it would be, you know, paralyzed and off-kilter with his, his other eye. So it looks like what they did was they just sort of, you know, made the... Papier-mache
0: face. Yeah, I don't know if it's actually... And then painted on there, but it, it looks painted, like, it doesn't look...
1: Good. Yeah, I, I don't know if the makeup's paper mache. That might be a little reductive, but you're right. Like Basically what they've done is is they've put the makeup on to the ugly side of his face and then just painted the ugly eye on that side, and it, it doesn't look good. It looks okay in long shots, but when they do close-ups, it's very noticeably fake. Anyways, Bateman's a little bit upset by this um, <laughs> because what Bateman wanted for his plastic surgery was to be handsome. Because Bateman was un- operating under the theory that the reason he's bad is because he looks bad. And if he looked good, he would be good. And so what Valen does is make him look super bad so that he'll think that, like, the only thing he can do is go off and do this murder and torture for Valen. Um It's also basically just so he can keep blackmailing Bateman and saying, like, hey, do this for me, Bateman. And then after, I will fix your face, Bateman. So... <laughs> The next stage in the plan is Volen has a dinner party. Uh, he invites a bunch of people to stay over at his place for the weekend, uh, including Jean and Jerry, uh, her dad, Judge Thatcher, and, like, four comic relief people. Like, two couples worth of comic relief people. <laughs> Judge Thatcher isn't really into this idea because he's, you know, aware that Volen like, wants his daughter... But, like, when he arrives, Volen's like, hey, like, I'm sorry, like, I didn't mean it, it's okay, I was just joking, like, whatever. And, um, they have this sort of evening, and for whatever reason, I don't understand why this is part of the plan, it ultimately doesn't seem necessary, but for whatever reason, the plan involves Bateman pretending that he's Volen's butler. So he walks into the room and people scream and Valen explains like, oh yeah, he, his face in World War One. he's an old friend of mine, now he's my butler, like, don't worry about it. Um, <laughs> and Jean gets scared by seeing Bateman at one point, um, but when Valen explains what the deal is, she apologizes to Bateman and says like, hey, it's okay, like, you just startled me, that's all. And it feels like it's that moment of like, oh... Someone finally showed Bateman kindness, so now he's like not sure if he can be evil anymore, kind of thing, (laughs) right? So you know, eventually we get to the part where everyone wants to go to bed for the evening, and a big storm has broken out. I'm I'm pretty sure there's a lot of stock footage from the old dark house rainstorm. Yeah. Here. Yeah. And everybody goes to sleep. The judge is really worried about Gene, so Gene and Jerry decide to switch rooms. This is sort of that typical old dark house running around stuff. A little bit. But really where it all leads to is Bateman captures Judge Thatcher out of his room and brings him down into the torture dungeon. And like, so like, if that was what Valen needed Bateman for, why have him walking around the rest of the night scaring people and or potentially deciding that he really likes Jean and doesn't want to hurt her? Anyways...
0: There must have been, like, a plan after to blame all of the torture and murder on Bateman. Sure.
1: That makes sense. Yeah. So he brings Judge Thatcher down into the torture dungeon, and they hook him up to a replica of the Pit and the Pendulum torture device from the short story of the same
0: name. Someone stopped on a table, and the pendulum with, like... The sharp edge is swinging down and is going to chop the dude in half. That's, in that's fif- what that looks like. In
1: 15 minutes. Yeah, yeah. Got a definite time run. Because the idea is the torture is supposed to be like the, the waiting. Yes. Like you know this is going to happen, but you can't escape it. Turns out Valen's got like the whole house rigged up to like a series of switches to do all kinds of crazy things. Jerry notices that the judge has been kidnapped and is trying to get down to the torture dungeon. He wakes up. Uh, one of the two comic relief couples, the other comic relief couple's been drugged and is just out cold, and they're trying to get down in to the torture dungeon to save the judge. Meanwhile, turns out Jean's entire room is just on an elevator to bring it down into the torture dungeon, so that happens. Eventually, everybody's all down in the dungeon, and Valen reveals that he's going to kill Jean and Jerry. So I guess we've moved past. I'm going to steal her for myself. And into the, if I can't have her, no one can stage. So he sticks Gene and Jerry into another Poe-inspired torture room, which is just that room where the walls close in from every, like, movie serial you've ever seen. (laughs) And that's just going to crush them and kill them. And it's at this point that Bateman decides that, like, he can't go through with this anymore um, and redeems himself by saving Gene and Jerry at the last minute. Uh, which results in Volin shooting Bateman in retaliation. But with his last sort of ebbing, dying strength, they have a struggle. Bateman pushes Volin into the crushing room and hits the switch again and kills Volin and then, you know, dies of his gunshot wound. And then everybody rescues the judge in the nick of time. The
0: end. Everyone needs a torture dungeon.
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't want to kink-shame Dr. Vallen here, but, like, this was a little extreme, Sarah.
0: <laughs> Bela Lugosi is so much fun in this.
1: He's clearly having a lot of fun here. He's he's chewing scenery, he's hamming it up, he's relishing every sort of diabolical line. The script really plays to his strengths by letting him talk. Yeah. Give him a lot of uh, spooky speeches.
0: yeah. Um, a lot of maniacal laughter, mm-hmm. which is great. We we mentioned in the beginning how this director is a working man director. You know, yeah. give him a job, he'll get it done. In the past, when we've seen working man directors take on horror films, it hasn't always worked out. Yeah. Here, I think it worked out.
1: Yeah, he he gets the style really well. Um, the gets...
0: the look and feel of this feels right.
1: Yeah. Um, also, just like the pacing. That you need to have for the for the tension and the suspense to work as well.
0: Mm-hmm, I think he pulls off really well. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I wish Karloff had had more to do, <laughs> um, but that's just kind of the the hand he was dealt with this script.
1: Mm-hmm. It's very much the hulking dumb brute mode of Karloff, like the Frankenstein monster or um, the old dark house butler. I forget his name, but definitely Morgan.
0: Morgan, yeah, yeah. totally. I will say that given that this movie flopped and Karloff's lesser role in the film, Mm. it would be easy to kind of blame Lugosi again. Mm. uh, Because, like, the last time he was this prominent in a Universal film was Murders in the Rue Morgue. So in a way, Karloff kind of maybe survived this movie flopping.
1: I could also see how, like, why Karloff would cancel his contract out. Like, given this lesser role and then the movie's a failure it would, you could understand how he might see that the studio was mismanaging his career. Mm-hmm. What's sort of interesting, like, I think Dr. Volen's a very fantastic villain for Lugosi to play. It's interesting for me to compare Volen and Bateman with, uh, Vertigast and Polzig from The Black Cat. Okay. Because Vertigast and Polzig were really, like, more equal roles, right? It was like...
0: Like, we talked a lot about how that movie was, like, a chess game between equals.
1: Yeah, it had that same feeling that, say, like, The Prestige does with Hugh Jackman and Christian Bale, where they're they're sort of equal characters. This part, Dr. Valen, has none of the subtlety of Vertigast, right? There's none of that moral ambiguity. Um, there's kind of no two ways about it. Valen is, like, a piece of shit, right? Like, even before he decides he's going to murder everybody... He's already a shitty dude. The movie goes to great lengths to show you what a shitty guy is, just from the get go when he's like refusing to help save someone's life because he just doesn't care, right? Yeah. That being said, even though it's not as the part doesn't have as much um Meat. Doesn't have as much variety or or um layers mm. as as Vertigast. Um, it's still a lot of fun. It's it's a delight to watch Legosi play it,
0: right? Yeah. It's funny that you are comparing these two roles with their two roles in The Black Cat. Mm. Because for me, this movie really reminded me of Phantom of the Opera.
1: Valen and Bateman are like if you took the Phantom and split him into two different
0: characters. Totally. Yeah, I I totally see where you're coming from there. Really when I started to make these connections was uh, (laughs) there's a part where... Gene does an interpretive dance to <laughs> this guy narrating the Raven poem. Yeah. And it's 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 something. It's mm-hmm. fun. Like that whole thing is in here just to kind of help ease the audience into the the horror that's to come.
1: And also to like try and justify why we called this movie the Raven. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: But yeah, so we have like uh, this older guy kind of manipulating a younger girl. There's a torture basement.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, there's a man with a deformed face. Mm-hmm.
1: Who the girl takes pity on at one point.
0: Yeah. And yeah, you're totally right that it's like Phantom if, the, if Phantom was split into two characters. But there was also a time when The Raven reminded me of other horror films. Mm-hmm. We mentioned the old dark house stock footage. Like, if it's not stock footage, it's like the exact same storm happening outside (laughs) this house. There were moments where it felt like it had Murders in the Rue Morgue camera ticks Mm. to it. Um, Specifically when, like, there's these various close-ups in the hospital room at the beginning. It felt very reminiscent of the various close-ups during the Rue Morgue orangutan attack scene. Sure. Um and even like the storm outside the house, uh yes, it feels very reminiscent of old dark house, but you could even trace it to the film by Roland West, The Monster, mm-hmm. in the 20s. Yeah. So I feel like just as much as this film is inspired by Poe's works, it feels very inspired or at the very least taking from previous horror films and does them pretty well.
1: Yeah, it's it's like a synthesis.
0: Yeah, and it's not doing anything new with them, but it's, it's really bringing these elements together in a cohesive way. Mm-hmm. And it tells me that like this working man director did his homework.
1: Yeah, that's a fair thing to say. You know, in, in Black Cat, Lugosi and Karloff were, were equals, like we said. Here, there's really no question to who has the more substantial role. Totally. It's it's and all the way and Karloff's really like a, a minor figure. He's he's a, a henchman really. Mm-hmm. But as we said in the beginning, he has top billing. And it's sort of hard not to read into Voland's torture and laughing and ordering around of Bateman some like perverse pleasure on Lugosi's part. Like you watch this movie and you, and you, you see Lugosi just cackling at Bateman having a hard time of things and ordering him around to do whatever he wants and really lording it over him and knowing the way that their careers diverged and even the way they were treated in the marketing for this movie with Karloff really front and center of that marketing it it really kind of feels like Legosi's having fun lording it over this other actor a little bit I mean I don't know if that's really true but it's, it's hard not to watch the movie and feel that in some way when you're watching it
0: I agree, um, and that's the only part of Lugosi's performance I kind of put a bad taste in my mouth, mm. but yeah.
1: That first scene when Bateman has yet to realize what he looks like, and he's in the operating room, and Valen, like draws the curtains on this like bank of mirrors along one wall, and he's watching Bateman out of like a little tiny porthole and just laughing and cackling at Bateman as he sees his face. Yeah. I don't know, there's just such like relish on Legosi's part.
0: Yeah, for me, this is a very competent, well-made horror movie. It balances tone pretty well. Like it yeah. has these um like you said the the two couples of comic relief. Mm-hmm. And like there's times where you're like here's the here's the comedic relief, but um it wasn't it wasn't bad.
1: Yeah, it wasn't nearly as tiresome as it's been in some of these other films.
0: Yeah. That this movie failed is interesting to me because I think if this had been made even um like a year earlier, I don't think it would have failed as much.
1: Yeah, it's it's a really fun movie and I don't really think it goes too, too far, at least not in depicting anything on screen. You know, I think it follows the code to the letter in terms of like not showing explicit methods of how things are done or whatever, like... It really just feels like maybe what was too over-the-top for people was exactly how psychopathic Legosi's character is, right? Like, mm-hmm. it almost feels to me like a weird, um, unintentional side effect of code morality. Really? So, there's no subtlety to him, right? I, I said that earlier, He's he's self-absorbed, he's cruel, he's totally mad. And I think in previous pre-code horror movies... The villains, you know, your your Draculas and your Imhoteps, you know, were villainous, but they always had something you could latch on to, like Imhotep has his lost love, and you know, Dracula's got a bit of tragedy to him, and you know, Phantom of the Opera, like you said, like there's people pitied the Phantom um, because he just wants to be loved, and and so on. Whereas like Valen, like like I said, I don't, you don't get the impression he loves Jean so much as he just feels he deserves her. And he has really no human feeling at all. He just is full of hatred and cruelty. And it's very extreme. And I wonder if, you know, he is that way because the code says he can't be sympathetic. But I wonder if that sort of pushed the evil in these characters to an extreme that audiences weren't really used to.
0: That's a really interesting idea. For me, I was thinking that the code has been instilling an expectation for movies Mm. and that expectation is leaving little room for horror in general.
1: That's true. I mean, in terms of what we've seen of post-code horror, we've had, you know, Bride of Frankenstein, which really camped everything up to give it a lighter, funner tone. And then we had Mark of the Vampire going back to the old um, Scooby-Doo ending of the 20s um, as a way to take the teeth out of it. Whereas like, this movie follows, I think, the code to the letter, but the, the teeth haven't been taken out of it the way it has in those other two movies. So I think, I think there's maybe something to your point as well.
0: Yeah. Well, our upstairs neighbor has started vacuuming. Do you want to keep going? Yeah, I'm going
1: wanna... to keep going. Yeah, our, our upstairs neighbor likes to vacuum at odd times of the day. So have fun with that, listeners. And future Sarah editing. Yay. So, speaking of code morality... If we want to talk about characters who have some gray to them, the closest is actually
0: Karloff's. Totally.
1: You know, he's a sympathetic jailbird and murderer, right? It's made clear that he escaped from prison, he killed guards on the way out, he killed, like, a guy during a bank robbery, all this kind of stuff. But the way the movie gets around it is it goes to a ton of effort to paint him as repentant, as wanting to be good and not doing crime anymore. Um, So that we know we're supposed to feel sorry for him.
0: He's still repulsive, though. Like, yes, the face, but at one point he goes to sneak into Jean's room, not under orders.
1: Yeah, not as part of uh, Volan's plan. Yeah. Also, he still dies. Yes. Even though he saves the day and redeems himself, he still dies because he's a criminal. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of a weird way of seeing, you know, they clearly wanted to, with Karloff, do that Phantom of the Opera, Hunchback of Notre Dame, even Frankenstein thing of the, you know, the big ugly monster, but you feel sad and sorry for him because he's actually not such a bad guy. But, like, trying to find ways of doing that in the boundaries of code morality, and, and one of the easiest ways is if he dies at the end.
0: Yeah. He also doesn't seem... As bad compared to Volin. Yeah. Right? So that maybe that's also how his greyness got past the code. There's also
1: like some stuff in here with his character where Bateman believes that he does ugly things because he has an ugly face, and then Gene takes pity on him, shows him kindness, that spurs on his redemption, which shows that like he was incorrect about that, right? Like that someone with an ugly face can do good things, that you know the movie refutes that point. Um, it's sort of like a Cliff Notes amalgamation of <laughs> Hunchback, Phantom, and Frankenstein.
0: Yeah, totally.
1: Um, the issue I kind of have with it in this movie is that the misunderstood monster and the idea of not judging someone by their appearance, in this film um, it feels less like you know a message, like this is what the movie's about, and more just like it's here because it's a trope of the horror genre. mm like, in the way that you're saying that um, the director, you know, did his homework and took these elements that have already existed and synthesized them together in a way that works, this idea of, like, the misunderstood monster feels like it's here just because it is in other movies. It doesn't feel like an overt theme so much as just, like, well, we also have cobwebs and torches and a dungeon.
0: That's a really good point, and I think you're totally on the nose there.
1: Mm. The thing that... um I had some difficulty with, was trying to identify, like, what is the theme of this movie then, if anything? Like, what's this movie about, you know? As we've put it in other episodes, like, what's the fear? What's the, the central thing that we're talking about? And I don't know if there really is one, to be honest. Volin. Well, so there's a lot of talk in this movie about how men with tortured minds physically torture others in order to relieve themselves of their mental torture. This is Valen's explanation for his motives, that um, his love of Jean tortures him day and night, and he can't get it out of his head, so the only way for him to relieve this torture upon him is to torture everyone else. He insists that, like, when he's finished killing everybody, he'll be the sanest man alive, but he's quite mad when he says that, and he's already not great even before he's <laughs> fallen in love with Gene. Yeah. Like we're explicitly show that he was always kind of a bad dude. So I'm not sure if we're actually supposed to take this as face value as the movie's thesis because
0: It feels very code motivated. It's well it's and it's the villain's worldview,
1: right? True. So I don't know if it's the, the and and we're explicitly told the villain is crazy and evil. So you know, Valen also <laughs> offers this as his interpretation of Poe's writings, that, like, <laughs> Poe wrote torture stories because he himself was tortured by a lost love, which, that's pretty dire as far as literary criticism goes. <laughs> so it ultimately kind of left me feeling like there's, like, there's not much that this movie's saying in a broader sense about what we should be afraid of. I mean, we're afraid of Valen, but, like, that's within the plot of this movie. You know what I mean? There's, there's nothing, this movie isn't saying anything bigger it's just kind of horror for horror's sake.
0: But not in the same way of, like, Mark of the Vampire, where we kind of described as it being a bit more Halloween yeah. than horror. This doesn't feel quite like that, but I, I totally agree that it's horror for horror's sake.
1: Yeah, if it, it's... You really hit the nail on the head right at the start when you said it was fun. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just a fun romp. Like, if you like old horror movies, you'll have a fun time with this because it just kind of feels like they're, you know, coming up with stuff that they think will entertain people. Yeah. You know, there's good sets, good cinematography, fun characters, good thrills. It's just a lot of fun. Yeah. Do you want to move into ranking? Yeah, for sure. So, Sarah, where were you thinking for The Raven? What area of the list were you looking at?
0: Well, I didn't really know where to start. I just had a gut feeling (laughs) of it being in this range. Okay. And I would put it between um, either above number 22... The 1913 Student of Prague, Mm -hmm. down to either above or below Mark of the Vampire at number 26. All
1: right, you have almost exactly the same range as me. Uh, My range is basically just one spot above yours in both cases. Um, I was thinking that I would definitely put this below Hands of Orlack, but maybe above White Zombie. And then my floor was definitely above Murders in the Room Morgue. So, really close to yours. What's interesting is that regardless of whose range you're looking at, yours or mine, it's kind of bracketed by two other Bill Lugosi movies on either side, White Zombie or Murders in the Rue Morgue.
0: Yeah. I was thinking about Murders in the Rue Morgue. We kind of talked about how it's a sticky wicket with, like, ranking Mark of the Vampire.
1: Yeah, and it's the same sort of thing here where do you rank something against the most horrific parts of Murders in the Rue Morgue, or do you rank something against the least horrific parts of Murders in the Rue Morgue?
0: Yeah, and I, I was just kind of thinking about the way that Lugosi plays the two main characters.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And in Rue Morgue, he's able to still be this very diabolical, completely evil type of person, but it's just full-on horrible. Whereas here, you could kind of have fun with it. Like, his performance is great in both, but I had more fun with this one.
1: My feeling is that, like, if Legosi's the best thing about both movies, there's more Legosi in this one. That's true. Like, it just feels like his part was really cut down so much in Murders of the Rue Morgue. Like, you really get more of the hero, the actor playing Dupont. Yeah. Um, Whereas, like... The hero in this movie is just as ineffectual as every other Universal Horror Movies hero ever. <laughs> um, and this is really Lugosi's movie, to a very large degree, more than most other movies we see him in.
0: Yeah, that was really nice.
1: Yeah, it's it's his show. Um, so that's sort of why I like it better than Murders in the Room Morgue.
0: Yeah. So why were you considering putting it above White Zombie? For me, it was below White Zombie.
1: Um, I guess because White Zombie... Maybe it's been a while since we've seen White Zombie, but I knew it wasn't as good as Hands of Orlac. mainly because of that thing where this movie's not talking about anything, and <laughs> where it's not about anything. Sure. And White Zombie, it's similar to this film in that um, both are about, like, a bunch of guys fighting over a girl, mm-hmm. right? Lugosi doesn't explicitly want the girl in White Zombie as much as he does in this film, but it's the same kind of stuff of you know some young girl and her fiance and the bad guy and that kind of struggle what i maybe appreciated more in the raven is um that the girl had a little bit more agency because she's not like literally a zombie yeah um but i think i think white zombie probably is maybe a bit better in terms of its style and its scope perhaps I don't know. I just thought maybe it had the potential to be better than White Zombie. I'm not sure. Okay. I don't have a good argument, though. So <laughs> I guess it's going below. But how far below?
0: Yeah. So we, we've narrowed it between 22, 23, 24.
1: hmm Is it better than Dr. X?
0: They're both so fun.
1: They are both a lot of fun. I think I like the way the comic relief is handled in this film better than in Dr. X. Like in Dr. X, the comic relief was the main character. Yeah. You know, and you had a lot of it. Um, And here I feel like it's almost like just the right amount and just the right kind of humor that it's not totally insufferable, you know? Um, So I kind of prefer that about this movie.
0: Okay. It's tough when we're comparing this very modern movie to these older <laughs> films yeah the the, the proto
1: horror films
0: really yeah especially because the Raven is I keep going to say building but like it's not making anything new but it, it's like I don't know if it would be the same movie if these other very notable horror films had come out beforehand yeah it's it's playing in
1: the same playground right it's 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 you know
0: mm-hmm <laughs> Whereas like the nineteen thirteen Student of Prague, it was definitely doing something very new. Yeah, it was doing it very well. Eerie Tales was again kind of playing in that playground.
1: So so the the question becomes like, do you give the Raven more credit for producing a better end product horror film, but it's able to do so because everyone else has invented all the tools first, or do you give Student of Prague more credit because even if it's not like as good of an end product it was really like making it up as it went like there was no blueprint for it to follow and this is the original student of Prague, mind you not the remake
0: yeah 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 this is a a tough choice to make and it would be easier if our upstairs neighbor was not vacuuming and distracting me as i (laughs) tried
1: to think this through it's really hard to have a train of thought my gut tells me it's above student of Prague. Um, i think so too just because i i enjoyed it more and really, like, the only reason to put Student of Prague above it is because you're giving Student of Prague, like, credit for being the, the first. first.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's tough because, like, how much weight do you give originality, especially with where the genre is going to turn with, like, the next few films of just, like, B-movies and parodies and whatever, how, how much, yeah, how much weight do you give originality? But I, give, I think you're right.
1: Yeah, I, I, you know what I give this movie credit for is, I give this movie credit for, even if it's not about anything, even if it's not saying anything deeper, I give it credit for going for the tone in the code era. Mm-hmm. Um, for for really, you know, still sticking to its guns of, like, having it be a story about revenge and torture and, and all this kind of grisly stuff, even if we're not seeing it on screen. I give it a lot of credit for that.
0: Okay. Then I'm comfortable putting it at number 22.
1: Alright, so entering the list at 22, below White Zombie and above The Student of Prague, goes The Raven, from 1935, directed by Louis Friedlander.
0: If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you will find links to previous films, previous episodes, as well as an appeals box where you can submit appeals, but also comments, questions, concerns, anything you would like. Uh, If Tumblr isn't your bag, you can also email us at ScreamScenePodcast at gmail.com or talk to us on Twitter at underscore ScreamScene.
1: ScreamScene updates every Wednesday on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Play. You can find us through our RSS feed on any podcasting app. If you'd like to help the show out, uh, one way that you can do that is by writing a review for us on iTunes, uh, leaving a rating on iTunes, uh, or leaving a reviewer rating on whatever uh, podcasting service you use to listen to us, as long as they let you do that, because in all those cases, it really helps uh, other people find the show, it helps the podcast out a lot in terms of growing its audience, um, so it's something we'd really appreciate. If you are unable to do so. Another way you can really help us out is just by sort of spreading the word manually, I guess. (laughs) Uh, You know, if you have any friends who you think might be interested in this show, whose interests turn to classic Hollywood or classic horror or any combination of the two, uh, just let them know about us. Uh, We're a pretty niche show, so anything you can do to help us out with getting more listeners is greatly appreciated. And We definitely greatly appreciate all the listeners we already have. Another way you can support the show is we've got a Patreon now.
0: Hey, that's cool.
1: Yeah, um, we've been doing the show for about a year now, uh, just over a year, I guess, and it seemed like the right time to do it. This show, you know, isn't free for us to produce, it's totally free for you to listen to, and it'll stay that way. Yes. Um... But it does cost us some money to do, uh, in addition to, of course, the, the time and the work we put into doing it. Um, so we decided to start up a Patreon, because we're kind of such a niche thing that it's it's pretty unlikely t- for us to get, like, advertisers and other traditional means to fund the program. Mm-hmm. You can find us at patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast, and there are... Uh, Three tiers you can sign up to. uh, For as little as a dollar a month, you can become a patron. Um, But for $5 a month, you get access to bonus audio. We've worked up quite a back catalog, actually, of cut content from past episodes, whether that's research content that was cut for time or just goofs or tangents or bloopers. Um, And those will start being released for patrons at the $5 level. The $10 level, if you have the, the skrill to back up that kind of <laughs> pledge, um, is a whole other ballpark.
0: You should say if you got the bones.
1: It's, it's pretty special. If you've ever gone and listened to the episodes of Dark Side Drive that I wrote and you enjoyed them, then you'll be getting more of that because $10 level patrons will get an exclusive horror short story every month written by me, that um, only patrons will get to see and read, uh, not published anywhere else. We have some goals that we want to meet with this Patreon, uh, hopefully, and uh, our first goal at $150 a month, uh, what we'd really like to do is do a special episode each month, so in addition to our four weekly episodes, a bonus episode covering horror-adjacent movies. Uh, Movies that aren't really horror movies, but, you know, they've got... Something to do with horror, like the Rocky Horror Picture Show, mm-hmm.
0: Clue, What We Do in the Shadows, yeah, horror com- these kind of things,
1: horror comedies, or movies that get lumped in with horror but aren't really, like Hunchback of Notre Dame or or stuff like that.
0: The Man Who Laughs, right. And if we get enough patrons to get us to two hundred dollars a month, we'll be able to afford new equipment, and hopefully we'll be able to cut down on the. Uh, shuffling and bangs that you sometimes hear from our upstairs neighbor. <laughs> if you've listened to our show in stereo or in headphones, you'll notice that Ben's more on one side and I'm more on the other. If we reach the $200 goal, we'll actually be able to fix that so we aren't just, like, sitting on either side of you. Yeah,
1: and um, maybe some of the echo that I tend to have can be fixed and <laughs> some of the pops of our heater, so... That's uh, the deal with our Patreon, and that's another great way you'll be able to support us now.
0: So if you want to check out this Patreon, you can go to patreon.com slash Scream Scene Podcast, and we'll also have a page for it on our website. What are we watching next week, Ben?
1: Oh, oh Sarah, next week. Carl Freund's directing it. It's been a while since we saw him. Colin Clive stars in it. But even more so, it's the American film debut of Peter Lorre. Because next week, we're watching Mad Love.
0: Oh, yes. I remember watching this before. It's super good.
1: We will see you next week, Creatures of the Night.
0: Bye! Bye!